talking about the ones who aren't here. Too weird, isn't it? All right. We're going to be in 2 Peter chapter 1 this morning. 2 Peter chapter 1. It, if you go to the book of Revelation, that's the very back of your Bible. If you just come a few pages away from that book, back towards the beginning, you'll come to the two letters of Peter. We're going to be in 2 Peter chapter 1. I want to begin by reading verses 1 through 15. 2 Peter 1, verses 1 through 15. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers... Be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it is right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder since I know that putting off my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. May God bless the reading of his word. We pray for just a moment. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Speak, O Lord. We seek to listen to you today, for you have the words of life and truth and hope. Father, you are righteous. And we long to be fed by your righteousness this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I chose uh, this text in Second Peter for a couple of reasons. First, I believe this passage dovetails fairly nicely with what Pastor Chase has been teaching us, especially in the Sermon on the Mount. But also, I am hugely encouraged. Second Peter 1, verse 3 and 4, always grab me when I look at them. And they are extremely rich with gospel content. And so I trust this morning that you too will be encouraged as we go through them. I'm greatly encouraged by those two verses because I am reminded by them of what God has done for me and for every other one who would claim the name of Jesus Christ. When I read that phrase at the end in verse 11, richly provided, my mind goes back to verse 3 and 4. It is in those verses that we read about the rich provision that came about through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. When I reflect on how rich that provision is, I am greatly encouraged and I am greatly reassured in my faith. In today's passage, we're going to hear two related exhortations about making effort and being diligent. And our tendency when we come to a passage like this can be to look at this text and then immediately begin to contemplate, how do I carry that out? How do I make every effort? How do I be diligent to confirm my calling and my election? We begin to think of the application piece of this. And we're going to get to those this morning and seek to unpack them so that we can be equipped to do that and be edified. But I want us to start with the early verses because any ability that we possess to accomplish the things that Peter demands of us can only come from the power that God grants to us as his children. So I want to linger on verse 3 and 4 for a while. They offer commentary on the truth and the blessing and the power and the promise that is in the gospel. Divine power. 
Life and godliness, precious and very great promises, partakers of divine nature, escape from sinful desires. Those are extremely rich words to our soul as believers in Jesus. They're gifts from God, actually, and they come through the gospel of His Son. Reading them is refreshing and it is sweet for us. Unless we remember that gospel and rely on its power and its promises, we will be unable to accomplish the things that Peter calls us to. We will flounder and we will grow discouraged. Peter's not calling us to discouragement. He is calling us to effort. He is calling us to diligence. That's his style for Peter to be active and demanding the activity of those who are reading from his word. That's his style and it's for our good. Before we get to the text, I want to take just a minute to set a little bit of a larger context. I'm going to offer a one-sentence summary for each chapter. This is a three-chapter book, and I think we can sum it up, again, very simply in one sentence per chapter, just to set some larger context for us. Chapter 1, believers are fully equipped to live in such a way that honors and pleases God. In chapter 2, Peter warns against false teachers who seek to deconstruct what Orthodox Christianity is all about, and they seek to destroy or diminish any concern about godly morals. And then in chapter 3, Peter encourages us, though it is long, seems long in the waiting, Christ is coming back. And so he appeals to us to live in anticipation of that day. How do we do that? How do we live in anticipation of the return of Christ? Well, Pastor Chase has been teaching us that from the Sermon on the Mount. Our righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. We must seek first the kingdom of God, trusting that God will provide all other things for us. We proceed through a narrow gate, though the way is hard, because it leads to life. And we're to be wise, and we build our house on the rock of our salvation, and keep our faith firmly fixed on that rock who is Jesus. We can't do that through our own power or our own ability. We can only do that through the divine power of God. It is through His power that we become partakers of the divine nature. Use that phrase to mean it is through His power that we can become like Jesus. Hopefully you can follow me this morning and read through it as we go, beginning with verse 1 through 4. I'm going to read again verse 1 through verse 4. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And listen to 3. It is His divine power that has been granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who has called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire." In verse 1 and 2, we see that Peter is addressing those who have obtained a faith by the righteousness of Christ. He's writing to believers here. In verse 3 and 4, he is unpacking for us what obtaining faith implies. And as he does so, he is setting a platform for where he's going to get with his exhortations for us. In verse 3 and 4, share some thoughts about living with a faith that believers have obtained the end of verse 4 is important for us. The only way that we become like Jesus, that is the only way that we uh, live out this participation in Jesus' divine nature, is to be set free from the things that are not like Jesus. We need to be set free from the sinful desires that come through the corruption of the world. That's the gospel. The only way that we can follow Christ is to turn loose the things of the world. If we placed our faith in Christ, freedom from the power of sin is a theological fact for us. God's Word says so. As the old preacher used to say, God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. And just for clarification, I'm not the old preacher. I'm an older preacher, 
but I'm not the old preacher. I would like to meet that guy because he gets a lot of credit for a lot of sayings. So one of these days I'd like to meet him and just shake his hand. You're that guy. It's not me. Let me use verse 3 and 4 to rehearse how obtaining faith in Christ sets us free. Set free in Christ. Then three observations about our freedom. First, in verse 3, this freedom comes from God's power. His divine power has granted to us all things. How do we receive this power? We receive it through the knowledge of Him who has called us. That's a phrase that means that we receive it because we are set free because of our relationship with God. It comes by grace through faith. In Romans 8 verse 2, Paul reminds us that if God has saved you, you have been set free in Christ from sin and death. We must never lose sight of the freedom that comes as a gift of God's grace. We must never grow weary of praising God for the freedom that He gives us that removes us from death to life through the blood of Jesus. And in life, we learn that freedom comes with responsibility. We also learn that freedom in the gospel comes, that comes through grace. It brings responsibility. Not only are we set free from something, We're also set free to something. We're called to His glory and excellence. Again, I take that phrase and and paraphrase it this way. We're set free to live in a way that pleases God. We're not called then. We're not called to a passive faith or an inactive faith. We're called to seek the kingdom of God. That's something that we must be about. James famously says, faith without works is dead. And Peter will say something similar as we work through verses 5 through 11. In verse 4, we learn that this new freedom identifies for us a new nature. We become partakers. In our freedom, we become partakers of the divine nature. And this nature is God's promise. You're not going to feel it. You're not going to feel that all of a sudden when you come to Christ, that you're not going to feel that something is, is that different about you. You're going to feel it in a, in a sense like, like, okay, I get this. I've been... I've been, I felt something like this. Now, we have some Pentecostal friends who would say that that feeling might come over time when you begin to uh, respond to Christ. And as soon as you can do something to manifest that response to Christ, then you can too feel what this new nature feels like. I don't believe the Bible teaches us that. I don't believe that you may not have a great sense of relief, a great sense of guilt being lifted from you. That's not what I'm talking about. But I'm talking about this sense of of feeling that all of a sudden I'm different. No, that happens in stages as we we progress in Christ. And we learn that we're set free from uh, the captivity of sin. This new nature is God's promise. That's how we know it's happened to us. Because it's God's promise. Being called to His glory comes with great and very precious promises. I don't know about you, but sometimes I'm... I'm waiting for those promises to happen. Some days in my life, there's no promises there. I'm not living them out. They're there, but I'm not embracing them. I'm not apprehending them for my own life. So I go to the Scripture, and I read, and I'm reminded the ultimate fulfillment of this will take place when we get to glory. 1 John 3, 2, the promised outcome of this divine nature, we're going to see Jesus as He is, and we're going to be like Him. That astounds me. I don't think it has any sort of physical implications. I don't think it means that at all. I think it is purely that we're going to be, the the, the divine nature that is given to us at the moment of salvation will then become more full and consummated in our eternal destination. We know that that's true when we get to heaven because the Bible tells us it's so. But these promises, Peter wants us to understand, they apply in this life, even imperfectly, For those who desire to live free from sin. The power is there by the promise of God for you to set that free. All things that pertain to life and godliness are given to us at our conversion. That phrase, all things that pertain to life and godliness, refers to now, that's godliness, and life, which is a reference to eternal life. All things that pertain to life and godliness includes partaking in a divine nature. Let me say it this way. As we seek to become conformed to the image of Christ, 
our nature takes on the nature of Christ. And we're setting the platform for what Peter is going to call us to here in a few minutes. Romans 8 says this, For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. So these things are taking place in us because of the power that God bestows upon us and the promises that God gives to us. Freedom comes from power through God's promise. One more observation about this freedom. We're freed from an old nature that was corrupted by sinful desires. That's a, that's a theological fact. In Christ, you have escaped the corruption of the world. Every time I think about these things, well, why is it still pressing in on me? Why do I still, still feel like I am enslaved by the corruption that comes from the sins of this world and my own sinful desires? And when those things come across me, I can't make them go away. I can look into my heart to ensure that I'm not harboring some kind of unconfessed sin. I can ask those who are closest to me to examine my life and speak into my life about why I'm still feeling enslaved, if you will. But at the end of the day, I have to go to the Word of God and say, God says this is true for me. So if I am feeling these shackles in my heart to sin, then I know that that's me doing that. I have the power within me to be set free from that, not to do that. When, we, when I think about that, I'm reminded, I'm not just set free from the corruption of this world that comes through sinful desires. I am literally set free from death. James addresses the danger of sinful desires. Temptation lured uh, into us by our own desires. And when desire conceives, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, sin brings death. So when we think about being set free by Christ from the corrupt desires of this world, then we realize that is our pathway out of death and into life. Believers escape, and as the moment of that conversion, as part of their new nature, they have every power to live a life of godliness. Paul says this, you have been set free from sin and become slaves of God. Your fruit leads to sanctification and eternal life. That's good, but Paul's even better in another place. Paul is more poetic about this freedom in 2 Corinthians 3.18 when he reminds us that with unveiled face we are all beholding the glory of the Lord and we're being transformed into that image from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord, Paul writes. So we can be assured of it. We can rest in it. We can be empowered by it. Our freedom in Christ means that the glory of Christ is becoming our glory. You figure that out. That's pretty impressive. Stunning if we think about it for just a few minutes. This is the promise of the gospel. And the promises of the gospel are made sure by the power of God. Those who have obtained a faith through the righteousness of Christ are set free. Now there's a phrase here that I jumped over and I want to come back to it. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. What, what do we think about all things? Well, I think there's some explanation here in the text, but I want to encourage us to think a little differently. I want to encourage us not to ignore that phrase because it means what it means. Everything that we need to live for Christ is given to us. But don't dwell on that. The point is not for us to check our toolbox and see what's in there. We need to remember that it is the master carpenter who has packed this toolbox for us. Everything that we need is there. The point is, Peter's going to tell us, get to work. You've got everything you need, now get to work. The point is, to know Jesus by repentance and faith is to possess everything that we need to please and honor God. Before I move away from these verses, let me summarize. By the faith that I have obtained... I receive precious and very great promises. And those same precious and very great promises come to all who have obtained this faith. By that same faith, I receive every bit, excuse me, every benefit of those promises, including become a partaker of his nature. 
By the faith that I have obtained, I am no longer a prisoner to the world's corrupting power. I am no longer captive to what can be very real sinful desires. Doesn't mean they're gone away. It means I'm no longer a slave to them. By the power of God, I am a child of God right now. And by the promise of God, I will become more like the Son of God every day until the day of God comes. Standing on the promises of Christ my King, through eternal ages I let His praises ring. Glory in the highest I will shout and sing. Standing on the promises of God. Are you standing on those promises as you face the temptations that come your way? Peter writes, we've been set free in Christ. And we all know that freedom comes with responsibility. Let me rephrase that. We've got some little bitty ones in here, and they may not know yet that freedom comes with responsibility. But you begin to put a few years uh, under your belt, and you realize that freedom does come with responsibility. Our first one is found in verses 5 through 7. Peter says, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Sort of tempted to ask, Peter, do we got to do all those things? All, all, all of those? There's eight of them there. All eight of them we got to pursue? Peter says yes. He says yes. For this reason, looks back to verse 3 and 4. Since we're given everything that we need through the gospel to live in a godly way, we should make every effort to do so. There's no reason for us to hold back. There's no reason for us to hold off. We can think of the excuses that we might come up with. I'll work on becoming more godly when I finish this, this latest project that I have at work. Really too busy right now for this godliness thing. When I finish seminary, boys' college, I'll have time to work on becoming more godly. Being godly uh, cannot be put off uh, uh, until I get married. Then I'll become more godly or, or, or until I finish having babies. For some of you, that may be a, an extended season. And just to show that I am not exempt, those of you who are my age or closer to my age, we cannot delay working on godliness until we retire. Peter calls it to us now. For this reason, make every effort. Don't wait. We have all that we need to grow in Christ right now, and we're expected to grow in Christ right now. So in verse 5 through 7, I'm describing this as striding forward towards godliness. We're, we're to be striding forward, moving forward, pressing on in the language of Paul towards godliness. Now these verses here bring, bring an interesting list of traits. The ESV calls them these qualities. And it, I want to just give you a little uh, transparency of, of uh, uh, sermon preparation. I, I wanted to, to sort of scan over these and not really deal with them very much. And we're not going to deal with them in great detail. But when I got to looking at the text and I got a little further down and I read in verse 8, for if these qualities are yours, and in verse 9, for whoever lacks these qualities, and then in verse 10, for if you practice these qualities, and then I get to verse 12, therefore I intend to remind you of these qualities. I think Peter wants us to pay attention to them. Faith is the first quality listed. And it's the only prerequisite to the other qualities. Obtaining this faith, which, which when, when we're elected to salvation, it comes from God when we are saved, and we're granted all things at that point to secure an eternal life and pursue godliness. So the first thought I would share here is that godliness is not a passive reality. We must pursue it. Make every effort to supplement your faith. Now, we should be reminded this morning that apart from grace... We can accomplish nothing that means anything eternally. Everything that we do is by the grace of God. But grace is not passive. Grace is not something that we embrace and say, okay, I got grace. I'm good to go. Louis Burkhoff says, says it this way. He says, sanctification or the attainment of holiness is a work of God in which the believer cooperates. That's a good definition. 
Tom Schreider helps us as well. He explains the partnership between grace and effort this way. Grace precedes demand. That's a marvelous way to talk about the cooperative venture that we engage in with God without confusing the power of God and the priority of God in making sure that this grace is manifested in us. Verse 1 says, We obtain faith by the righteousness of Christ. His death was a once-for-all sacrifice that paid for our salvation. So whatever, whatever effort, let me, here's where I'm going with this. I'll go back to verse 1. We have obtained a faith of equal standing. How? Chase pray, uh, pre, uh, prayed that for us, and we sang about that this morning. We obtain faith by the righteousness of Christ. It's the only way that we get it. So whatever effort that Peter's going to call us to, whatever diligence that Peter is going to impress upon us, will not save us. It's not about being saved. Our effort and our diligence help to demonstrate or confirm our salvation. James says faith without work is dead. Peter says faith without effort can blind us, we'll see this in a moment, can blind us to the goal of our faith. So Peter tells us to supplement our faith. Supplement is the ESV translation. It means to fortify or bolster. NIV uses the word add, and that's a pretty helpful trans, uh, translation. Now, uh, one of the things of uh, the aging process, I have a low, just had my physical, just had my blood work, it all looked pretty good, but I have a low vitamin D count. My vitamin D levels are low. And so what that means is I get tired easy, and I battle fatigue. Now, so people tell me, get out in the sun. No better source than the sunshine for vitamin D. Just get out there and bake away, baby. But I also have a history of skin cancer. So that approach to getting vitamin D will not work for me. I trade the demon that I have for another demon, if you will. So I take vitamin D tablets to supplement my vitamin D levels, and they help. I have vitamin D in my body. We have faith, but it's not as effective as it needs to be. So I take small tablets to supplement my vitamin D levels. Peter is suggesting these qualities to supplement our faith, to make it effective and fruitful. In addition to faith, Peter is listing seven qualities. How should we think about them? Well, it's not exhaustive, nor is it really a checklist. We don't do one and then go to the next one. Okay, I got faith. I'm good there. Let me see now. I need to go after virtue. Okay, let me work on virtue a while. I got virtue, knowledge. I'm learning. I'm learning. Okay, I got the knowledge. I'm all good. Self-control and on. We don't do it that way. The order should not be seen. We don't finish one and start on another. The order does not indicate a particular priority, but I do think it's helpful for us to notice the first one and the last one. The first quality mentioned is faith. Everything builds on that. The last one mentioned is love. And those are really good bookends for us as we think about our faith. Those qualities are, are good beginnings and attainments for us. So, Like we do with the fruit of the Spirit, for instance, if we've studied that or thought about that, like you do with that, you want to seek to develop these qualities simultaneously. You're working on them all the time. They're given to you, they're there, and you develop them. Try to make them better, stronger. Peter teaches us in verse 8 that a life of godliness is marked by these Christ-like qualities. I said I'm not going to define them precisely, but I do want to walk through them. I think we know the essence of these words and what they mean, but I do want to walk through them and just offer a couple of thoughts on each one of them. Because Peter wants us to make a big deal about them. So first, supplement your faith with virtue. Virtue refers to moral excellence. We tend to think of moral excellence in the terms of, I don't, I don't cheat on my spouse. I don't fudge on my expense account. I give a fair day's work for a fair day's pay. And that, those are examples of moral excellence. But I think moral excellence in the context of how we're reading here today, especially for believers, I think moral excellence is also being unashamed of piety. I think moral excellence means that I am unwilling to compromise holiness for the sake of fitting in or being cool. Virtuous believers will leave no room for their doubt that they are making every no room for doubt that they are making every effort to be godly in every fiber of their lives. And Peter says, supplement your virtue with knowledge. 
Knowledge is a big deal for Peter. I didn't count, but you read this text, and you're going to read it over and over again. You read his letter, you're going to read it. Knowledge, knowledge, knowledge. He ends this letter by calling believers to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So let me just take knowledge literally. Keep learning about Christ. Keep learning God's Word. Keep learning who God is and what He desires from you so that by testing His will, you will be able to discern that it is good and acceptable and perfect every time. I supplement your knowledge with self-control. If we know the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, I think that's right. Self-control is the last one listed in Galatians 5. So think of self-control in the context of affirming your faith. You're obtaining, you've obtained this faith. Now think of self-control in the context of affirming that and striving forward with it, moving forward with the faith that we have obtained. Think of self-control in those terms, and you might come up with examples like this. Paul tells us that self-control is taking every thought to obey Christ. Peter tells us that self-control is being sober-minded. James tells us self-control is being quick to listen and slow to speak, and slow to anger. Jesus, we just learned, tells us that self-control is treating others like you want them to treat you, especially in response to when they've treated you badly. That's self-control. You're not going to do that without self-control. Self-control, supplement your self-control with steadfastness. I think steadfastness is a parallel term, at least for me, for endurance and perseverance. Steadfastness, be, be steadfast. It's, it's a quality of action. It's not something that all of these are, are active things that we need to be pursuing. Steadfastness imitates Paul as he presses on the goal for the prize of the upward call. Run the race that God has set before you, that's steadfastness. Fight the good fight, that's steadfastness. Finish your race, that's steadfastness. Keep the faith that you have obtained. That's what it means to be steadfast. And supplement your steadfastness with godliness. I, I just want to keep it simple. A godliness is, a godly life is a life that pleases God. Paul gives us a good motto, if you will, about that, or strategy or vision statement, whatever term you want to use in 1 Corinthians 10. When he talks about um, uh, this motion, he says, he, there's a context there, but he says at the end of it, which I think we can embrace, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's godliness. And then he, Peter says, supplement your godliness with brotherly affection. Again, I want to keep it fairly straightforward here. I think this is love for your fellow believer. We're to love our neighbor as ourself. It's the second great commandment. It matters. It matters a great deal. Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor as yourself. But the New Testament seems to imply, in a number of places, a priority for our love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. It doesn't mean we ignore the other. It just means that we give a priority to this one. Perhaps Galatians 10 captures what brotherly affection is intended to mean. Galatians 6, 9, um, Do not grow weary of doing good, for in due season you will reap if you do not give up. Verse 10, So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. That is, love your neighbor as yourself, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. That's brotherly affection. Show brotherly affection. And then supplement that with love. Love stands above. Love is the crown jewel. It's the most excellent way in 1 Corinthians 12. It's the aim of Christian teaching in 1 Timothy 1. It is the top of all Christian relationships in Colossians 3. Above all these, put on love. So there's a quick run through the list. Not quick enough, brother. There's a quick run through the list. Those observations help me distinguish, if you will. They help me distinguish between what the qualities are and identify how they work together and fit together. And you may remember growing up, some of you, there, we had these pictures. I remember this a long time ago. We had these pictures, and it was a, a learning by association in school. And they'd give you these pictures, and 
Some of you may still do some of this. And they tell you to, some of, I'm sure they're really hard now, and you probably do it on your computer, which makes it even harder. But they, they give you these pictures, and they tell you, okay, here's six things or eight things or ten things. Identify the one that doesn't fit. So you're looking and you're looking and you're looking and you're thinking and you're looking. And when you get to this list of qualities, and they're all in that picture, they all belong in that picture. They all fit. There's none that we can single out and say, no, I don't need to worry about that one. So Peter's first exhortation is to make every effort. Make every effort to supplement your faith. And then he gives us those qualities. And it's reinforced in verses 8 through 11. We need to be all the more diligent to confirm our calling and election. Look in verses 8. Look in verse 8. For if these qualities, there it is, the ones that we just talked about, if they're yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Verse 10. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. There's incentive. Amen? Verse 11. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal King of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we've been set free in Christ. We're, 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 uh, we're moving forward towards, uh, towards godliness, and now we want to stay focused on growing. In chapter 15 of John's Gospel, Jesus teaches us that fruit will not grow on lifeless vines. Verse 8 reveals how important these qualities are for us. And, he provi- and they provide a motivation for pursuing them in increasing measure. We're back to the old preacher again. He said, fruit don't fall far from the tree. I think he may have been a southern preacher. But he said, fruit don't fall far from the tree. That's actually a biblical notion. If you were listening last week, the not-so-old preacher known as Chase Sears shared from Matthew 17 that we can recognize Christians by their fruit. So if we want to be known as Christians, we're going to be manifesting the fruit of Christians. Virtue, self-control, godliness, etc. We share two words from verse 8 and 9. One of them is a word of encouragement, and the other one is a word of warning. First, we get a word of encouragement from verse 8. We are encouraged to pursue Christ-like traits. How? Why? If these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful. To say that positively, when we are pursuing these qualities and they are increasing, we're going to be effective and fruitful. Verse 9 is a warning. If there's no pursuit, or if there's no fruit, may mean there's no salvation. There's no evidence of grace in your life as it's lived out in these sorts of ways. May very, very well raise questions. What Peter describes is you've forgotten. They're nearsighted, so blind they've forgotten that they've been cleansed from their former sins. Now, that's a reference, I think, to what baptism is intended to declare when someone goes into the baptismal waters and they, they die to their self and rise to a new way of Christ. They are being cleansed symbolically from their former sins. So I think that's what that scripture is about. I want to bring that to, to make a difference here in just a moment. Fruit matters. In John 15, Jesus warns unfruitful branches are pruned and they're only good for kindling. So we can't be positive here in verse 9 if he's talking about a believer or an unbeliever. Either way, the warning should grab our attention. The end result of forgetting that one is cleansed raises questions whether or not that one is truly saved. There's a danger of that even in your own heart. I took verse 9 and verse 10 to come up with a title for this sermon. Diligence builds assurance. So the danger of that is in your own heart. It's certainly dangerous to those who know you and who are watching you. To raise questions. This, this brother or sister, this person, this man or woman says they are saved, but I don't see the virtue. I don't see the self-control. I don't see life that's pursuing godliness. Ineffective, not producing fruit. The absence of these qualities would indicate a lack of desire to grow in them. And that's what Peter's getting at. That result testifies for us that whatever expressions of faith may have taken place at some time may very well have been empty and without meaning. When I was at 19 Old Baptist Church, 
big seminary church, a lot of seminary folks there, a lot of seminary students. And I was blessed to be able to uh, get to know some of them and encourage some of them and share some things with them. And I was blessed um, four different times to baptize a seminary student, re-baptize a seminary student who in childhood or in early teen years went through the baptismal waters and then as they grew in understanding and they realized that then they weren't really saved, they just got wet. So it was a great honor for me. It was extremely humbling for them and it was a great demonstration of the gospel to the church. When we go through that, we are testifying that something's gone on in our life. We're testifying that we've been washed from the sins that were in our life. Failing to make effort to become more like Jesus serves to nullify what that baptism is intended to declare. I see two possible implications of lacking effort. One, if this is you, you, are in a, you may be in a, a serious tailspin of your sin. You're lacking remorse. You're unwilling to repent. And that's raising questions about whether or not you're truly a believer. Or you may have made some public profession of faith, but that faith is simply not evident to others. Making every effort matters. Growing in these qualities matters. If they are yours and increasing, Peter writes this in the negative, they will keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful. In the positive, if they are growing and increasing, they will help you be effective and fruitful. And others will be able to observe that. And they will be able to testify, yes, I saw that brother or sister be baptized and their sins have been washed away and they're living a life now that seeks to be away from the corrupt sinful desires. Either way, you're not focused on growing. You're embracing, you're not embracing the power and the promise of God that are in verse 3 and 4 for the good of your soul. So let's get to verse 10. Peter echoes his call here with the phrase calling and election. Make every effort, he's echoing that, to confirm your calling and election. Confirm means to validate, demonstrate through some form of visible evidence. You're able to be discerned by those who see you Able to be discerned by yourself, by the way. Calling an election for me, in this, as I read this passage, are words of assurance. So being all the more diligent to confirm my calling and election is a call for me that if I will do that, I'm only going to build or aid my assurance. I'm only going to make it stronger. And if I don't do that, then the enemy's going to get in my ear about whether or not I'm truly a follower of Christ. And if I am, then I'm not being very good. I'm not doing anything for that. Diligence partners with grace. Being diligent does a couple of things. It gives evidence of true conversion. Again, these are not, only the Lord knows. We get all that. You understand what I'm saying? We're talking about evidences of grace, demonstrations of conversion. Being diligent to make, to confirm your calling and election gives evidence that you truly are converted. That's why Peter writes what he does. It also protects us against falling away. If you practice these qualities, you will never fall. I think most of you in here are Southern Baptists at some point. Maybe some of you came out of a different faith background, but our Baptist faith and message is very clear that true believers cannot fall away. We as Baptists believe that because we believe the Scripture teaches that over and over again. But we all know people who have professed Christ and turned away. Very recently, some very famous and influential, a very famous and influential person has done that. Now, the Apostle John would then say that person was never a believer, really, to start with. But how does that fit here? How does that fit? Making every effort and being diligent compares with striving towards heaven. It, it, it's how we offer our bodies as living sacrifices. It's how we strive for peace and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. It's the phrase that Paul uses when he speaks of pressing on for the goal of the upward call. Using Paul's words, staying focused on growing indicates a desire that we want to claim the prize that's at the end of our journey. Three applications of diligence for me. Diligence is how I practice the qualities mentioned in verses 5 through 7. Making every effort in those verses is the same thing to me as being diligent to confirm my calling and election. Sure. Diligence affirms our assurance and it strengthens it. It confirms it. Peter's not writing these words just because he feels like that's a good phrase. He's about to teach them about false teachers. And false teachers are all over them. And so he's trying to say, do the things that you need to do to guard yourself against that doctrine. 
Diligence is how we resist to prevent falling away. If we do these things, you will never fall. It's the promise of God. Calling for this is Peter's way of helping believers receive the promises of life and godliness. Verse 10 is linked to verse 11 because diligence testifies that the end is worth the effort. See what verse 11 says? In this way, by making every effort, by being diligent, in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let me repeat, Peter is not, he's not putting forth any sort of works-based salvation. He is encouraging us to grow in Christ. Diligence testifies that in your own heart, you're showing others, what I, what's coming for me is worth every effort that I make. It keeps us on the pathway of assurance and pursues the goal of assurance, that, that entrance into the eternal kingdom that's been richly provided, richly provided. The blood of Jesus paid for my entrance into the kingdom. That's costly. Provided. Provided. Not earned. Not earned. But guaranteed by the promise of God. How do we do this? How do we confirm our calling and election? By practicing the qualities. How do we avoid falling away and going on to receive so that we can go on to receive the eternal entrance into the kingdom of Christ? By practicing the qualities. And we come to the end of the passage in verse 13. We read, I think it is right as long as I live to stir you up by way of reminder. Let me read it very rapidly. Verse 12. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it is right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder. Since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. Peter, I think, is saying here that his death, he, he, he seems to have an understanding his death is near. Fifteen. Until then, I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. I think it is right as long as I live to stir you up by way of reminder. So Peter is stirring us up to go the distance. And let me unpack verses 12 through 15 uh, quickly, and let me do it this way. You know that when a preacher says quickly, that really doesn't mean much. They didn't giggle much there, Pastor. Peter's desire is to remind us that may come out of his own experience. Think back. And there was a time when Peter forgot Jesus, as it were. He at least forgot to identify him as his Lord and Savior and who he was. Remember the story in Luke 22 where Jesus warns Peter, Peter, the enemy wants to, he wants to sift you like wheat I'm praying for you so that your faith will not fail. Your faith will not fall away. You remember that story? And, of course, Peter being Peter. I love this guy. Peter being Peter. No, he starts, starts pounding his chest. Not me, Lord. I will never fall away from you. I'm ready to go to jail with you or even to death with you. I'm not going to fall away. And we know the story. Sure enough, Peter fell away. He did forget the cleansing that Jesus had done through the forgiveness of Peter's sins. Perhaps Peter was remembering that episode as he's writing that he wants to stir us up by way of reminder because he knows the danger personally. In his love and his mercy, Jesus restored Peter. And after that time, Peter's ministry was very effective and very fruitful. By God's grace, we have Peter's reminders in God's word. So that we will remember to make every effort to supplement our faith and be all the more diligent to confirm our calling and election. Through the power of God and the promise of the gospel, believers are assured of their entrance into the kingdom of Christ. Hear that. Let me say it again. Through the power of God and the promise of the gospel, believers are assured of their entrance into the kingdom of Christ. It's not effort. It's not diligence ultimately that does it. It's the power of God and the promise of the gospel that does it through the blood of Christ. That's assurance for us. But perhaps there's some this morning who do not have that assurance. 
Perhaps there are some who would say that they have obtained faith through Christ, but they still lack assurance. The ambition this morning is not to heap guilt on you or to cause you to feel um, um, wrong in some way, but I do pray that this message will stir up your effort and diligence so that by confirming your calling and election, your assurance would grow. And there are some this morning who haven't obtained faith. Can't say that. Have you obtained a faith in Christ? No, I can't say that. If you're honest and you look into your heart, you can't say that. The promises and the power of God are available to all who will turn from living from their self, trust in Christ, and live for God. That offer stands for all who will confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead. Whoever calls on the name of Jesus with that sort of confession, Paul writes for us in the very same passage, they will be saved. So if you're here this morning and you have not obtained this faith through the righteousness of Christ, perhaps the Lord is tugging you in that direction. Perhaps you want to know more about that. Perhaps you want to ask what forgiveness of sins has to do with that. I'll be standing out there at the preacher's door when this is all over with. I'll be happy to talk with you about that. There are a number of elders here in the room, deacons, a number of people in this room who would delight in sitting down with you and just opening the scripture and walking through without any coercion, no arm twisting. Just let the power of God do the work of God in the heart that needs to be drawn to him. That's you. I pray today that before you leave, before you leave, get with somebody. Express your concern about not having this faith. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for its goodness. Thank you for its call to action. Thank you that the call to action is built on a platform of your power and your promises. Our action does not uh, procure for us anything that you have not already given to us. It simply seems to, uh, it simply works to add for our own hearts and for the demonstration to others, add to the revelation that your heart, that you have worked in our hearts. Thank you, God, for that. May we make every effort and be all the more diligent, God, so that we would have effective and fruitful lives for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.